Welcome back to the Boss Cities Podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Manasi. Today, we're here with Amanda. And Amanda, if you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Amanda Calabrese. I am the co-founder and CMO of SQL. We are a research and development company that is starting with the tampon, a product that has not seen meaningful innovation in over 80 years. Yeah, thanks so much for the intro. We're really excited to talk more about SQL later in this episode, Um, but I actually wanted to talk about your sport really quickly because I think it's pretty interesting and kind of mention that. Um, I know that you represent the U.S. in the sport of lifesaving, also kind of known as like lifeguarding, and you've won multiple national championships. You've like competed across the world. I know you've done a lot sort of in that realm. So I'm curious if you could kind of tell us about your journey through this sport. Um, Yeah, and I just want to like bring it up because I know it's like a very, very unique sport and something that just sounded really cool. Yeah, so it it is a very unique sport. Uh, I often find myself trying to find a good way to explain it. It is worldwide, right? We do have the world championships. We had, I believe we had uh, close to 80 countries represented at the world championships um, a few months ago when I was competing. Uh, But I, I started competing at a very young age. I was seven, eight, nine years old as a part of the junior lifeguard program, which is an ocean safety get comfortable in the ocean, kind of learn to ocean swim program that they have all along the coastline in California. We had it in New York where I grew up. And and the whole idea is that we're going to waterproof our communities by giving young children the ability to learn to swim and, and protect themselves in the ocean to keep lifeguards and keep young children interested in learning more and more about the ocean and ocean safety. We have these competitions that really break down the core competencies that you should have to be a successful lifeguard or to be a successful ocean lifesaver. So you have an open water swim, you have running on the beach, um, you have you know rescuing a partner with a with a paddleboard, all skill sets that you would use if you were going to save somebody's life. And I always like to describe it as uh, one of the only amateur sports in the world, or maybe the only, uh, that has a simultaneous humanitarian mission that goes alongside with the competitive aspect of it. I find it so interesting that you mentioned like the humanitarian aspect of this sport because uh, there are like few sports that I think of that can also be like so readily applied to actually being able to like save human lives or is like an actual job like in the real world so I think it's really interesting to sort of have like the flip side of lifeguarding and see it being like a more competitive um or like uh, I guess like athletic um space as well and I know something else that you've also mentioned is that SQL itself uh, has been described as a product you wish you had on game day um can you talk more about some of the negative experiences you had and how um, you consciously recognize like the normis- norm- normalcy of these like negative experiences for girls. I think a lot of girls uh, just in sports in general go through a lot of like similar struggles uh, where they sort of subconsciously thought um, that discomfort um, because of like our periods or because of like our menstrual cycles is sort of normal. So I have competed at the national championships for lifeguarding for, you know, almost 15 years now. And I remember a string of 
five, six, seven years when I was younger and, and competing in the junior division. And my period would come every single year. It was like, you know, maybe I won't have my period at nationals, the, the biggest, most premier event on my schedule for the summer. Maybe it won't happen this year. And then I would get to the competition day and it would be, oh no, I have my period. How am I going to manage this? And, and I think that's a really visceral memory for me is the dread of having to figure out, you know, I have, I have my paddleboard, I have my, my swim fins, I have my, my bathing suit, my technical bathing suit, I have my goggles, my cap, all of this game day equipment ready for me to compete to not only win a national championship, but vie for a spot to represent my country. And I couldn't have a period product that fit in with my elite game day equipment. It was always the dread of I, I'm wearing a bathing suit and and what's going to happen if I'm running out of the water and I, I feel like there's a red line coming down from my bathing suit, right? What if, what if my spring, my string is showing? What if, uh, what if my product fails me while I'm running in the beach? Um, and, and that was always something that it was a hurdle that I had to overcome in athletics. Yeah, I appreciate you like sharing that. I think that the whole idea of just like your products not serving you is something that so many women and just people that menstruate feel. And I also think that like sort of that normalcy of just feeling again discomfort, but also just like not just physical discomfort, of course, but just that like sort of like almost like like you experience like experience that emotion, that sort of negativity and that like heartbreak in a sense. Like I think that is a very overwhelming feeling for a lot of people, whether they're playing sports or whether they're just going about their daily lives and still feel like their products don't serve them because even women and people that, you know, menstruate and don't, you know, obviously do competitive sports like that kind of still feel the same struggle. Um, and it's crazy how, you know, women across all of these disciplines um, sort of feel that same thing. And I think that sort of complacency when it comes to innovation and in sort of the menstrual product space um, has just become more and more profound because we've been more normalized to kind of like see these struggles as just part of the experience rather than seeing them for what they are. Um, but I just like really appreciate you talking about that and sharing that because I think that's like something that so many people feel like myself included. Um, uh, so I wanted to like kind of take that bridge and talk more about your journey venturing from life-saving and competitive athletics into you know engineering product design which on the surface might you know seem like two completely different worlds but you know I'm sure that again like you found a connection between both um so I'm curious like if you you know sort of knew uh that menstrual products were a space you wanted to innovate in was it something you kind of stumbled on later in college but I guess like how did sort of your experiences during life-saving and competitive athletics like follow you into into that that world of engineering so i'll answer that question in, in in two parts first i did not think that i was going to be i didn't even think i would be an engineering student at stanford i went in thinking that i was going to be a diplomat i was going to study languages i was going to study political science or international relations uh and and very quickly i realized i had missed being a builder and i had missed that process that you go through when you discover that there is a need 
and then you build to solve that need, right? And I and I think this this the, the second part of this is this relationship between life saving and the product design, the engineering is a little bit convoluted because I grew I grew up at the beach, right? I was a lifeguard. I was competing as a lifeguard, but I've also been a surfer my entire life, and and something that I had done in my summers in high school, my summers in college. Uh, and that it was lifeguarding, but it was also surf lessons. And it was some, it was my first, it was really my first job. I, I got a job at 14 being a, an assistant surf instructor. And then during the day I swept the floor in the surf shop. Right. Uh, and I was, I felt so lucky to have that job because I could use all of those skills that I was honing as a competitive lifeguard, as an actual lifeguard. And I could apply them to providing somebody a service and providing somebody something that they needed, which was more confidence in the ocean or just confidence in general. Um, and so when I, by the time I had gotten to Stanford, I had built up a little bit of my own business. I was, I had many surf lesson clients. I was taking them out. I was taking multiple clients out a day. Um, and I really had this, this kind of like need centered solution centered business that I was running myself over the summer. And when I got to college and, and was like, you know, I'm going to be a diplomat. I'm going to start taking Arabic. I'm going to, I'm going to work for the department of state, do all of this. Um, I realized I missed talking to people. I missed under, I missed understanding people, gaining insights from people and then building for that. Uh, and, and that was something that I pivoted to very quickly and while I was in college, I was still always, I was still building as a, as a lifesaver or as a surfer at the same time that I was building during my college academic experience. I actually, one summer, I, I decided not to apply for internships uh, because there was a need that I knew needed to be solved where I had grown up. And it was that nobody Nobody had been able to put together a surf group, lesson, camp. I mean, most of my clients were young women. They were moms. They were young, young daughters. Uh, and, and I taught a lot of women surfing because they felt really comfortable with, with a woman instructor. And I, I thought, you know, if my business is growing in this way, just on a client by client basis, then could I actually build a stronger business? A, a better, more profitable business um, and, and also a business that solves a real need, which is that the camaraderie that I saw in my group lessons with all of the mothers and daughters and, and the young girls together, could I take that need from camaraderie, for competence, for getting young girls out of their comfort zone and empowering them with lifelong skills? Could I apply that to something that I could build over the summer? And so I started the, from what we know of the first all girls surf camp on Long Island in New York. We ran that for two summers. Um, and, and I did that in the summers while I was a student at Stanford in the product design department. And, and so by the time I got to my senior year, um, I, I had always been building in parallel, building in the ocean, build it with that experience, building in an academic experience but I had never really considered the menstrual space as something that I felt my skills could be applied to. It was, I was like every other consumer. I was 
Like these, these, these are the products that I have available to me. This is what I'm supposed to use. And, you know, it's probably my fault when they fail, right? I'm just going to blame myself because these, these products were made by probably really smart people. And it's a big corporation that makes them. And it's probably my fault if they fail because my period's weird or my period is unpredictable. Um, and so it really took my, my co-founder Greta, uh, then a classmate of mine at the time saying, you know, we have 10 weeks to put together a hypothetical business for this class project. And when you're in college, 10 weeks feels like forever. I feel like I could blink and 10 weeks would go by now. But she said to me, you know, we're going to work on this. We're going to commit to this for 10 weeks. So we might as well work on something that we're really passionate about. And she had been on the Stanford lacrosse team. I mean, they wear white skirts to compete at home games. Uh, And she had been thinking about menstrual products and their deficiencies for many years with her teammates. And it, it took that kind of that, that leap to come to me and say, Hey, why don't we investigate the menstrual space? Why don't we use our academic training as, as product designers, as people that are trained to discover needs and insights uh, from the world around them and, and from the people that we have access to. And let's give this, this category a shot and it immediately resonated with me. It was something that uh, it was something that I, I had struggled with as an athlete, and it was also something I, I'm incredibly passionate about equity, especially as it applies to sports. I've had countless situations in my sporting career where I, I have felt that, and even less like I have felt, it has been blatantly noticeable that things would have gone differently for me if I had been a man, if I had been on the men's team, right? Um, and that was something that resonated with me when when Greta came to me with, you know, the idea to work on building a better menstrual product. It was, you know, this is our little piece of this equity component in sports that we can break off Um and we can work on and we can work towards a better future for. Thank you so much for that answer. I feel like you mentioned a lot of things I want to dive deeper into, but I think there's a lot of beauty in sort of the organic nature of how everything sort of came about. It was sort of, I think, you know, you were talking about your surfing business and just even seeing that camaraderie between girls and women and mothers and sort of your role in being able to get young girls out of their comfort zone and sort of how even those skills in building a surfing business translated to building a period product company, which is so unintuitive, but really beautiful to hear about. Um, this is so random, but I took my first surf lesson this summer in California and I had an amazing experience and I told a lot of my friends that they should do it because it definitely like, I've never had a huge affinity for water, but I like had the best time ever. And I like, I did it with my friend. It was amazing. So I definitely like resonate with what you say when you, when you're talking about just surfing being an empowering experience, it was a very humbling and very empowering experience for sure. So definitely relate to that. Um, and I think another important point you brought up that I wanted to touch on was sort of the idea that a lot of people blame themselves when their products fail. Um, and I think it kind of relates to this idea of we all feel like our weird experiences are very singular, especially when it comes to our period, right? But I don't think many of us realize that every girl's period is weird in its you know own unique way, but we're kind of conditioned to think that there's sort of a 
normal, typical, standard 28-day cycle. And obviously, most people aren't going to fall into that. Um, And most people aren't going to, you know, fall into the traditional five-day, like, this is how your flow should look type of period. Um, But I don't think there's enough dialogue um, around the fact that that's just not the way that periods work, right? And so, I think that has, you know, a lot to do with sort of the shame that's associated with a lot of girls' experiences. I thought that was really interesting. Um, And sort of on that note, I wanted to transition more into, you know, sequel and sort of what you're doing redesigning the tampon now. But um, I think that, again, like this is a little bit relevant to what you were talking about earlier, but I'm curious, like how sort of the values of menstruators, I guess, like in your eyes, play a role in um, the success of a menstrual product company, right? Because I think that products sort of before used to be just about functionality. Like, does it get the job done, right? Like, does it accomplish the bare minimum? But I think now we live in an era where there's so many diverse, like anatomies, socioeconomic status, identities, and even priorities, right? Like things like sustainability and how that influences purchasing habits. Um, So I'm curious, like, I guess, how is SQL kind of crafting its own niche to foster, I guess, a like a form of shared alignment with users and people that believe in the brand? I know that it is very important to customers of such intimate products to feel as though they can trust the product that they're using. And I think it's really important for myself and my co-founder to, to, to share our stories and, and show that we were, we were customers. We were going into the, the tampon aisle and we were young girls not knowing what products to use. Right. And we were sitting there from the perspective of athletes with our value propositions, being really focused about the things that were going to help us succeed, right. Performance, comfort, a, a not having an unintended accident, right? Having it be able to last eight hours because that's how long I was at a track meet. Um, And so it's really important for us to share our stories and, and lead with our stories so that our future customers can see themselves in us and, and how we can kind of have a shared experience and they can understand that we designed a product that we would have loved to have on our game day. And so now that we've brought that product out into the world, they can have that for their game day. And we can elevate the experience so that it's going to, so that it can be predictable, right? It can be consistent because that are, those are the things that we wanted in our products on game day. I think that's one component to this. You know, there's, there Right now, there's only one sport tampon on the market, and it's Playtex Sport. It is a a very popular product, uh, but not everybody's satisfied with it. And 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 I believe that there, the more choices that we have available to us as consumers in a category where, as you said, every period is weird and every experience is different, and it is such an intimate experience. You know that that's the way that consumers win is having many different choices and they can make the best decision for their experience and their body. Um, that's, that's one, I mean, that's the very narrative focused and that that's kind of the story component. I mean, the other differentiation here is very clear, right? We, we look different because we're designed to be different. 
Um, and that's very intentional based on our proprietary manufacturing, uh, the sheer fact that we had to go through the FDA, right? If, if you are, if you are not going through the FDA and you are a tampon company, it means that you are buying tampons, white label from a factory. So you are buying tampons that are going to be made, you know, for a big box retailer. And they're also going to be made for you on the same line. There's no differentiation between them except for the brand that you're printing on the box, right? And you don't have to go through the FDA because your factory did it for you. Um, and so we had to go through the FDA. We had to submit safety and efficacy data to prove that our tampon is at the standard that it is. Um, and, and we had to show that our design is going to be safe and effective. Um, and we had to do that because our design is, it is, it is designed to be fundamentally different than what is on the market. I think fundamentally different is also, I want to caveat that because we were really intentional about making a product that was, I mean, it was substantially equivalent to the, the tampon as a product because we, that was like a core design value for us. Like we cannot, we can't invent a new product here, right? People, this is such an intimate category. We want to integrate into existing habits that people have and give them an experience that they deserve and that they should have, right? Uh, and that that also was why we really zoned in on the tampon. We wanted something that was going to easily integrate into people's existing habits and have the experience um, that the customer wants to have. Uh, that's why we didn't look at menstrual cups. And obviously, we did research early days, but um, when, when we when we dug into some of the data, 70% of US women report using tampons as their product of choice. Um, and then also did did research around Stanford uh, and, and outside of Stanford. Uh, overwhelmingly, it was, you know, I'm really comfortable with tampons, but, you know, they're not always, they're not always up to the standard that I would like to set for them. Yeah, I find it so interesting you're talking about again, like providing more options um, for like the period product space and also specifically mentioning why you focused on tampons in comparison to like other period products. Uh, something else that I think is also interesting uh, about menstrual products in general is that there's like a huge product loyalty when it comes to period products. Um, so people usually like, decide the type of brand or type of product they want to use really early on. Like for me personally, like I'm pretty sure I've stuck to the same brand since when I first got my period. Um, for the most part, which is like crazy to think about. And I know like a specific statistic that sort of like speaks to that is like the average woman will only switch menstrual products four times at most in her entire life. And if you think about like her like life stage in which she's like menstruating, that's like over like a period of like 30 to 40 decades or three to four decades, which is like insane to think about. Um, so based on that sort of like trend within like the menstrual product space, uh, I was sort of curious to hear like how you think this behavioral pattern speaks to future innovation in the space of menstrual products, especially with companies trying to entirely re-engineer the way that products work. I, I think that, I think there are very few companies in the category that are fundamentally re-engineering products especially for, for the menstrual space. I think it, when you look at statistics like that, it's just not, it, it doesn't make sense to build something that is going to be such an uphill battle to change consumer behavior when you're, this is a habit that has been formed um, and passed down, uh, formed over 
decades and passed down over generations. And, and those are, I mean, those are the most difficult habits to break, especially with such an intimate product category. Um, so, so I do think, I mean, even with menstrual cups, some of the research that we did, uh, we, we found resistance among populations that we thought would be like have high levels of sexual education, uh, in their youth, uh, have, uh, open and honest dialogues with their parents, right? We thought, you know, surely those people would be comfortable enough to use a menstrual cup because they've learned about their body from an early age and and still overwhelmingly tampons were uh, were the product of of choice and the product of discussion. and And I think that in order to get somebody to really consider changing their product and changing their habit, you need to give them, you need to give them a strong reason too. And I think you really need to connect with that reason too. I think me sharing, you know, the stress and the the lack of peace of mind that I had on race day, surely that'll resonate with somebody struggling with the same thing, right? I think having open and honest conversations about women blaming themselves and menstruators blaming themselves for their products failing and saying, it's not you and it's not your fault and your period is not weird and you don't get a red line down the side on your tampon because the period blood is coming from one side of your your uterus right like that's just not it, it's it's just not the right dialogue that we should be having with with ourselves and and I think something that we really want to focus on as we bring this product to market is rewriting that dialogue and engaging with our customers in that intimate way so that we can have those difficult conversations yeah, I really appreciate you kind of talking about that and sort of mentioning that I think as sort of a company working in this space, you have sort of this responsibility, not just kind of build this product, right, but to really think about the cultural dissemination of it and the dialogue associated with it and the dialogue associated with people's experiences in general. And I think that's like a very beautiful thing. Um, speaking of which, I would love to dive deeper into the design of tampons and how it has remained the same for the past 90 years since Tampax's patent in the 1930s. Um, I'm sure that you know a lot about this more from like a you know physical and mechanical perspective than us or our listeners do. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts about the design of the tampon, its stagnancy and kind of just like if you can maybe walk us through a general timeline of what tampon design has looked like and um, how it sort of really needs to be disrupted. Sure. So I think the best way to approach this is to really understand intimately how the industry works. Uh, and, and that can actually give you your answer to, you know, why innovation has been stifled for so long. So the tampon was designed in 1931 by Dr. Earl Haas, um, and and that design, um, it, that design is is very similar to what we have today. Um, you kind of had two early tampons that came to market. It was what later became the OB, uh, and it's what we have today as Tampax. Um, what we've noticed, and I can explain why why this occurs um, in a minute, but. Something that we've noticed, um, we understood that there were these vertical channels uh, that were on most of the tampons that were on the market. Uh, and we tried to understand, you know, 
why are these vertical grooves or these vertical channels here if they're causing premature leakage? In the industry, we like to call this bypass leakage. So that's when a you know, leakage event occurs because menstrual fluid is being diverted away from the absorbent core and down these vertical channels. This is what we've, we, this is what we observed. Uh, when you kind of lift the hood and, and take a look inside of the industry, you can see mass consolidation at many levels of, of the industry. And so you have, uh, we can start at like the tampon making machines, right? There's one single company, um, one sole manufacturer of tampon making machines. And they are the supplier of the machines to virtually every tampon manufacturer across the world. There are a few cases of companies making their own machines. Some of the bigger companies like Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson, they have their, or Johnson & Johnson divested OB a couple of years ago, but uh, Edgewell um, and Procter & Gamble, they have very unique tampon shapes. So they either are going to augment these machines or they're going to uh, make build their own machines. Um, but but pretty much most of the tampon machines in the world are coming from this one factory, right? So so there's there's where this kind of consolidation starts. Then you get to the fiber suppliers, right? And and if you're going to use viscose, which is standard performance focused uh, fibers in the industry there are two suppliers for that, right? And now you get to the white label and the private labelers, right? So private label, meaning they have a direct relationship with a large retailer. They have kind of like a joint venture. So that would be, you know, this factory is going to produce tampons for Target and they're going to be the Target label or they're going to be the Walgreens label, right? Um, but then you can also sell products white labels. You can say, I'm going to sell these tampons. They're going to probably be the same as the target ones, but I'm going to sell them to a smaller company. Um, they're going to put a, they're going to put their own brand on it and then they're going to distribute them themselves. Right now there are less than 10 of those companies that are like producing at mass, mass, mass quantities around the world. So the consolidation continues. Uh, and, and a lot of those, those companies are overseas. The, the only U S uh, contract manufacturer for tampons, um, they stopped producing tampons uh, in the last few years. So you can really only get those products from large manufacturers overseas. Um, and, and so to really understand the motivations or, or lack of motivation for innovation here, right? The large companies, uh, they, they don't need to innovate, right? It's really costly and it's inefficient it's inefficient to turn off a machine tinker with it work on it um and and try and you know make something new when everything that they're producing today is already selling right they already have these distribution agreements um and, and those distribution agreements are really powerful uh, they have shelf space that they've earned over years and years and years of, of moving product very quickly. Um, so that, that's the big guys. There's little incentive for a, a smaller company to innovate because it's really difficult to vertically integrate. So the larger guys are vertically integrated. They can really control their supply chains. Uh, they're not really innovating because they don't really need to, right? They have the distribution. The, the smaller guys, the, the cost of vertically integrating is, is incredibly high, 
Um, and there are very expensive hurdles to actually get innovation across the line, whether it be, you know, research and development costs, uh, all the way through to regulatory costs. And so because the cost of research and development um, and then getting it to manufacturing and then getting it regulatory cleared is so high, they choose to buy white label because it's less friction to get a brand that relies on marketing uh, for differentiation to the end customer. Yeah, thank you so much for sort of like breaking down like this space uh, as a whole and like why innovation is not as commonplace and like what are some of sort of like the like learning curves and like difficulties to be being able to innovate, especially as like a smaller company. So I want to sort of hear more about like SQL's own work um, and how like the main premise of SQL is that it has vertical channels um, and traditional tampons, uh, which allow them to sort of like uh, expand from the core outward, but like traditional tampons because of like the linear channels like cause a lot of leakage. Um, so could you walk us through deeper through like the mechanics of the SQL tampon and how this inside of uh, these like a uh, more like spiral based channels that came about, especially when it came to your engineering based background, like what was that sort of like testing process like? Were there any other like sort of like channel designs that you were looking into? Um, and specifically for the channel paths, like what, is it, what did those prototypes um, look like during the testing process? So we started with the hypothesis way back when we were in college that if vertical channels were causing the fluid to be diverted away from the absorbent core because fluid is going to follow the, pa the path of least resistance, right? Very simple physics. If we could extend the flow path, then that would allow the product more time to follow the grooves top to bottom. Um, and and these, these helical spirals, these, these grooves, um, they were going to allow the product to be absorbed evenly and circumnavigate the tampon. Um, and so this was, for us, it was very basic physics. I think it's, it's, it's really wonderful for marketing to be able to show somebody like, you know, straight line, fast, spiral, slow, right? It, it's, it's, it's wonderful that we have that visual cue on our product, um, and that, that visual, um, the visual difference. Um, but, but the testing early on, it was, you know, it was, we need to test out the theory and we need to understand what this is going to look like. So from the dorm room, it was, you know, wrapping cordage around a dowel, um, and then administering fluid to it in a kind of like plastic canister, um, and, and watching the fluid go around the geometric orientations and trying to understand, you know, how much faster does it spiral around? And is it actually following this path? And then we, you know, met up with a Stanford fluid mechanics professor that specializes in the field of rheology, which is, um, it's complex fluids, um, traveling through a, a membrane like ours, which would be like a non-woven fiber, um, fibers, membranes. And, and when we spoke to him, he was like, oh, of course, like theoretically, of course this would work. And we're like, no, but we really need to visually see this. We really need to prototype this to understand 
how this actually works. Um, and so he was the one who we discussed the cordage prototype with. And then, then we started taking existing tampons apart and we had the non-woven fibers and then we were twisting them and then testing those to try and understand the spiral absorption patterns. And was it really going to absorb more evenly? Obviously, those were not not cleared for human use or consumption. Um, those were very much so like look like you know looks like prototypes. We even had a seamstress at some point um, make these like felted tampons that had spirals felted into them so that we could feel the shape and understand what the shape was going to look like. Uh, but but then when we started to move into you know this is a theory that we really want to apply to this product. Um, what is this going to look like building for scale? That was when we brought on an R&D group uh, in Europe that we worked very closely with. They are some of the best in the world at working at the specific fibers that tampons are made out of. We worked very closely with them prior to COVID um, and, and, and completed a lot of research and development on different patterns, uh, different ways that we could imagine the spirals. Uh, and and then something that that we have always, you know, and, and we actually ended up executing, but something that we had always had in the back of our mind from day one was, you know, it, it's it's great to be able to make the tampons, you know, in a in a tabletop press, which is how tampons are made. They're pressed with a ton of force coming together, um, and and that press makes this imprint on the tampon and compresses it together so that it can radially expand in the contact of fluid. Um, you know, it's great if we can do this on a tabletop press, but how are we going to do this at scale? So we made our tabletop press. We we made a product that we were really proud of. Uh, and, and then we brought in best in class, top tier talent to help us understand how we could build proprietary manufacturing equipment so that we could make the necessary changes to the product and the production process to have the end result, this spiral tampon. Um, and we've been able to successfully do that. Um, a couple months ago, we we announced a partnership with the, and a manufacturing relationship with the uh, top United States supplier of tampons. Uh, they do private label, white label tampons. Um, and, and we've worked really closely with them uh, as, ma as manufacturing partners, right? We've done a lot of our, as I said, we're an R&D company uh, focusing on women's health products. This is the product that we've we've invested the last four years of R&D into. And we're so lucky that we don't need to have a lot of that CapEx um, in manufacturing, right? Like that, that, that can kill your business. Um, but we've been really able to focus on R and D what our team is really good at, what we've been able to bring on top level talent to do, um, and then have the experts manufacture our product. I mean, this is, this is one of the best manufacturing facilities for tampons in the world. Um, and, and they're incredible. Um, they're very good at what they do. Um, and, and we're really lucky to be partners with them. Yeah, thank you so much for like really diving into that. I think you answered sort of a lot of the questions I had. And I think your sort of walk through the process and how that kind of relates to your decision making at SQL, why you chose to work with you know, a certain type of manufacturer, um, even just like where you're investing, I guess, like the time, money and talent, like speaks a lot to your mission and just um, the core values of the companies. Like I really appreciate you diving into that. And of course, like talking about the history of 
and like I guess the background behind why tampon innovation is not really a thing and why I guess a lot of sort of people investing in this space don't really see it as a need um but I'm curious like uh, I think you've mentioned previously that um SQL's patent portfolio has been an accomplishment that you're very proud of um I'd love to hear more about this like could you walk us through maybe some of the patents that um SQL has and kind of how these range across like tampon design utility and just like the um manufacturing like processes slash equipment as well Hey, that is something that we're very proud of. I really want to hammer this home because I think this is this is very rare as a startup in this category to have um, actually patentable technology. It's it's very very rare. Most companies that are entering this space are buying white label, as I said, um, and and they uh, they don't have technology that they can patent because that technology is owned by the factory that they're buying from, right? And so that's something that we're really proud of. We have multiple utility patents. We also have a few design patents. Um, remember design patents are, you know, the ornamental features of the product. And, and that's really important to us because our product does look a very specific way. Um, and, and we have utility patents about, you know, how this product, the the components of how this product is that is made that are, things that we own and things that we have invented, things that incredibly talented members of our team have been able to build. Um, yeah, and and uh, it, it's very, it is very funny looking back at our first utility patent that we had filed at, at while we were students at Stanford. We have amazing professors that had the foresight to say, you know, hey, this presentation that you did, right? Like you you need to, you're, you're showing us on the board, something that could be a patentable technology in the future. Just put everything down there and, and write something so that you have it as a place to start. Um, and, and I think that that foresight was incredible for us because it really started us on that track of thinking, okay, everything that we do, everything that we develop, um, all the research that we're doing, this is really important in building, in driving asset creation for this business. Um, and so I, a big thank you to all of our professors for that wonderful early advice for us. Something else I also wanted to touch on, I know you mentioned earlier that um, since tampons can also be considered as like a medical device, uh, they need FDA approval. So I was curious to hear more about uh, SQL's like recent FDA approval um, and what that process was like. Um, I think it obviously takes like a good amount of time for it to like gain that approval. Um, and I'm also curious to hear um, how, like just for the, I guess like um, space of like health um, and like medical regulation in general, like uh, what's that process sort of been like to be able to innovate in a space that again requires some level of like um, authorization or like regulation? So the FDA process is it's 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 incredibly important. Um, it, it's very important, and it, it can sometimes it at at times feel like a very opaque process because you put together your paperwork, you put together your submission of, of all of the data that you did um, and, and all of the testing that you did. 
uh, and, you, and you submit it to them and then you're kind of waiting to hear back, right? Am I going to need to do more testing? What kind of questions are, is the FDA going to have for me? Um, and you're kind of you're kind of waiting. So we submitted in March. Uh, we received FDA clearance, 510K clearance on our device in August. Um, but but that's a pretty um that that's an that's a great timeline, right? Um the truth is that we've been preparing for this FDA submission for a long time, for years. We have an incredible regulatory and quality team. We have, you know, a head of regulatory affairs that we work with. We have um, a, a full team that manages our, our quality management system. Um, and that ensures safety and efficacy of, of the design and all of our processes, um, everything. And, and they still they they still need to work on the product today, right? To ensure that that our process is safe and effective um, and, and that we're doing the best practices possible all the way through from, you know, development, manufacturing, all the way through to shipping product and, and the customer getting the product. Um, and that's very unique for a, a company in this category, having, having a quality management system team, as well as a, a regulatory affairs role on the, on the team. Um, you know, the, the FDA process, it's, it's expensive. Um, again, it requires a, a very uh, incredible team that is also expensive and working really hard. Um, and so I think that's a reason why there is very few companies that are actually attempting to do such a thing. Um, it, I think the best, one of the best uh, pieces that that we had written about us uh, in in the last few weeks, we we received some great press in the last few weeks for FDA clearance. But my personal favorite uh, was other than Katie Dighton at, at Wall Street Journal, which was a pleasure. She was a pleasure to work with and just an incredible journalist. Um, and launched the story uh, for us. But um, Dr. Jen Gunter, if you you both are familiar with her, she wrote an amazing piece about sequel and and all of the work that we had done. Um, she is notoriously difficult to please when it comes to period products, menstrual products, um, and other women's health medical devices and, 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 um, products, right. She'll be the first to call you out if your science is not totally tracking. Um, and, and we had an incredible interaction with her, right. She asked us for, you know, what types of testing did you have to submit to the FDA? What was that submission like? What types of product, like, what do you, what sizes are you going to offer? What, what are, what are your product SKUs? And we were answering, we were, we were able to answer every single one of her questions. And she even says in her article, you know, most times I reach out to a company, they, they send me over to their press person and they're like, ah, like this is scary. Jen reached out, Dr. Jen Gunter reached out to me, but I was so excited to hear from her. We've been a huge fan of her for years. And I think that, that was one of the coolest things to happen to us to feel that recognition for and, and validation that our heart, like all of the work over the past four years was worth it. And that somebody, somebody recognized it and somebody said, Hey, they're, they're really doing things the right way. That's, that's cool. Um, so I, I just really, I, I really admire Dr. Gunter's commitment to the truth and transparency. And um, that was very, that was very cool after being a fan of hers for a long time. 
This is so cool. I just like found her like article and it's so funny because like even in the beginning, like she's like, today's the day I get to write about a product that's an exception. So I'm really excited to read this. I, I think it's cool because I'm scrolling through it now and she's even talking about exactly what data um, you submitted to the FTA. So obviously like very transparent, very clear, honest evaluation of the product. And I'm definitely going to subscribe to her. I actually don't know. I've never heard of her, but her like content seems interesting but thanks for bringing that up we'll like link that in the description of this episode as well but um yeah I appreciate sort of your answer walking us through the FDA sort of regulatory process as well and even sort of the experience of you know getting press and what that was like too um I think like to wrap up this episode I have a little bit more of a tangential question to ask you but um I think that you know you'll definitely be able to provide maybe an interesting perspective on this um, you know, the global tampon market is, I think, expected to be worth over $6 billion by 2028. So it's definitely growing by over about 5% annually. So it's like a huge market. Um, but I'm curious, like specifically to ask if there's any sort of trends in the space of menstrual products you're betting on, of course, like other than SQL and all of the amazing work you're doing. Um, I think that this kind of connects to maybe what we were talking about earlier about sort of core values that menstrual product companies have menstruators have um and i think that there's sort of interesting innovations we've seen with things like products that can give you scientific insight you know maybe products that can you know actually track your cycle um reusable products reusable applicators and even products that are um kind of driven out of necessity i know one of them is like marlowe's tampon which has like a lubricant dip which makes insertion of the tampon a lot easier there's tampons that are coated with cbd oil you know there's so many different kinds of different interesting menstrual product innovations and if only we had the time to try all of them um but i'm curious like if there's any that you're specifically curious about interested in you know maybe you're kind of looking out for but um would love to hear your thoughts on that too Absolutely. So I would say within the menstrual product space, um, there's a menstrual cup applicator that I've seen on TikTok and they look pretty cool. Um, really excited to see uh, what they end up doing with that product. I think that's great, great product design um, and, and need finding. I, I want to say that I am somebody that is I want to stay away from the idea of trends in a category that really needs everyone to focus on needs because the more crowded with trend focused products, the less innovation we're going to get, right? We might get more choices, but a lot of those choices are going to look exactly the same. They're going to, they're going to, they're all going to be white label. Like I got to get on this, you know, started tampon company trend. Right. And it, it, that's where you get, you know, innovation stifled and, and just a lot of choices where there's very little differentiation. So I want to stay away from trends and I really want to focus on, you know, core needs in the women's health category. I think that's where I love to have these thought exercises, you know, what, what really interests me right now? What's a problem that I think somebody needs to solve or we need to solve, or, you know, somebody, maybe it's not in the private sector, maybe it's in the nonprofit sector, maybe it's a, maybe it's in the government sector. Um, but something that I really think is a need and a problem that needs to be solved is education around cervical cancer, cervical cancer detection, um, how can we screen? How can we treat? It's a very preventable form of cancer. Um, I mean, it's like 
yeah, it, it's very, it's a very preventable, um, it's a very preventable problem. And, and I don't think anybody has really solved the access issue. I'm really, I'm really fascinated by the fact that this issue and this problem could be solved with a, a higher level of access to healthcare, whether that be at home um, or, you know, eliminating these obstetric and gynecology deserts that we have all across the country. Um, there's some incredible nonprofits that are working on bridging the gap um, between, you know, desert to desert or, or, or filling the gap within these, these, um, OBGYN deserts. Um, and I, I, I actually went to, um, an event where one of these, one of the founders of, the, of one of these nonprofits was speaking. And, um, I'd love if you could link her, her mission in the, in the podcast, because I think what she's, there's a political Politico article that is just, absolutely stunning at the work that she has done um in in the south of the united states right it's it's happening here i think we talk a lot about um issues in in period care access abroad but it, it's happening here right we have we have desert obgyn deserts in this country we have um people struggle to afford period products in this country they afford to have access to period products in this country and um, just basic healthcare needs in this country for especially, um, especially pertaining to menstruators are just not being met. So I, I am personally very interested in seeing how across pi private, public and nonprofit sectors, a lot of these problems are going to be solved. Um, and so you could say that's the trend that I'm keeping my finger on. I think that's such a beautiful answer. I'm keeping my finger on that trend too. That's exciting to hear. I think that I, you just like made so many important points there. I think like one of them just being that there needs to be innovation across sectors. I think it can't just be, you know, startups, companies that are, you know, enacting this change, but it has to come from, you know, political organizations, nonprofits, grassroots movements that really understand the needs of these desert communities, like these deserts, like especially more rural areas, um, areas where there's people with, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds, sort of things like that. Like it, it's very important that we have more people on ground that are actually not only initiating change, but documenting this change and pro pro projecting the voices of these people. So I think there's so much that needs to be done kind of in just raising awareness for access. I think even with cervical cancer and cervical can cancer screening, I know that's a huge problem, especially since we don't have proper you know, tools even for cervical cancer screening and places that are not healthcare deserts, much less, you know, in healthcare deserts, obviously that's going to look a lot worse. So I think even building better healthcare infrastructure as a whole is so, so important. But um, I think this is a perfect place to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for all of the insight that you shared with us, um, you know, talking us, walking us through your journey, through, you know, your sport, how that, you know, kind of motivated you to start SQL, your engineering background, um, and a lot of uh, the behind the scenes of how you make decisions at SQL. Um, I think that was like really, really interesting to me to hear about. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for this episode. I learned so much from like, again, your engineering, like prototyping background. I didn't like know as much about how much it's sort of required to, again, innovate in like the menstrual like, product space, like what it sort of takes to be able to create like an effective tampon um, that again serves needs of like its users. So so um, like valuable to be able to hear your perspective. And I'm really excited for SQL to come out on the markets, like whenever that comes. Um, and yeah. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is this was a wonderful conversation. I'm I'm so glad to have spent the last hour with both of you. <laughs>